This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Trusting that God has something to speak to us today by his Holy Spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety." But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But... If you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. 
The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servant, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is the word of the Lord. We're at a time of major political and social transition in Israel. There's a changing of the guard that's happening here, and as happens over again, over and over again in the Old Testament, when there's a major transition like this, a major change, we find a speech by Israel's leader. You find this Moses in the wilderness before the people enter the promised land in the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Joshua, as he's about to die once the people have crossed over. And now old gray Samuel gives his last speech before the assembly of Israel. Things are changing. But the underlying spiritual issue remains the same as it always has and it always will. Will the people of God hold fast and cling to their covenant God and be faithful to him and serve him and obey him with all their heart? Or will they swerve away from him? Will they wander from God and serve useless, empty idols and forget the Lord their God? Everything is changing, but then again, nothing is changing. Our daughter is very convinced that things were quite different when I was a child. And a week or two ago, she asked me in all seriousness, Dad, did you guys have staplers when you were a kid? And I'm not sure what she imagines the 1980s to have been like as we were huddled in our caves with our little loincloths trying to write pictograms on a piece of animal skin and pierce them together with the fang of a saber-toothed tiger. But human beings have actually not changed that much over the course of human history. Technology has changed. Human institutions have changed. Human beings have not evolved very much. And the human condition is basically the same as it always has been. And the underlying spiritual question the people of God face in generation after generation is essentially the same. Are we going to hold fast to God or are we going to wander away? And here is Samuel, this man who is faithfully judged. He's led the people of God since he was a young man. And now he's giving his farewell speech as a leader. Samuel is going to hang on for quite a bit yet. He doesn't die until chapter 25, but his days as Israel's political leader are over. 
And this must have been deeply painful to Samuel to have faithfully, sacrificially served the people for so many years, and now he's being shoved aside, this old, gray, faithful man pushed to the side in favor of someone who was young and tall and strong, King Saul. Deeply painful, I say, but yet we find that Samuel has somehow dealt with his heart, and he's, this is not the last bitter speech of a resentful man. What Samuel is concerned about is not the people's own rejection of him as a leader, his own personal grievances. He is deeply worried that this is the beginning of a long slide away from God. Put me to the side, if you wish, but hold fast to God. And now at this assembly of Israel, as they've confirmed victorious Saul as their king, Samuel stands before the people and presents to them their new king. And his last act as a judge, as Robert Bergen points out, is to put himself on trial. I invite all of you to be a witness against me. Have I taken anyone's ox? Have I stolen anyone's donkey? Have I accepted bribes? to blind my eyes. Anyone is welcome to stand up, point the finger at me, and bring an accusation. It would take a remarkably clear conscience to make that statement before a national assembly. There are not too many political leaders who could do this, and sadly, not too many spiritual leaders either. But Samuel's life has been one of unparalleled Integrity, he's lived in the fear of God. He's been aware of the eye of God watching him all this time. And his whole life is a testimony to his own faithfulness to God. I think it was Matthew who was telling me a few weeks ago about an oncology professor of his who would pause the class to take smoke breaks. And it makes you wonder how seriously this man took the threat of the cancer of which he was educating his own students. But nevertheless, in a medical university, you still can get a good education even from those kind of professors. It does not work that way with spiritual leadership. Because those who lead the people of God, if their life is not whole through and through before God and before his people, It does the very opposite of what they're trying to achieve. And their life undermines their words and brings people to ruin. You might remember Dave Featherland speaking a year and a half, two years ago, about the private basement of our lives versus the public balcony. Anyone remember that sermon? A lot of people have mentioned that one to me. Yeah, so we have this public balcony where we stand forth before others and say these great and noble and spiritually stirring things. But we also all have a secret basement that nobody knows about. Perhaps not even our wife, our husband, our children, but it's there and there are things going on. And if people knew about that private basement of ours, would that be in line with what we're saying on our balcony? Or would it bring uh, 
call everything we've said into question. Don't you dare presume to speak for God if you're not living for God. Don't you dare presume to speak for God if you're not living for God. Far better to remain in silence than to utter things you yourself don't even believe. And that will inevitably, because the private basement always reveals itself sooner or later, and then destroy the faith of those who've put their trust in you. Samuel is a man who has earned the right to speak prophetically. He's earned the right to plain speech before the people of Israel. And then he goes on, after putting himself on trial and being vindicated by the people who all must admit, yes, this is a righteous man. After putting himself on trial, Samuel then puts God on trial. God is now going to stand in the dock And Samuel, in five verses, rehearses 800 years of Old Testament history. Has God, in fact, proved faithful to his people, or is God a dishonest taker? And in a few short verses, Samuel reviews the story from Exodus to Joshua. God heard the cry of Israel when they were pleading with him to rescue them from slavery in the land of Egypt. And he brought them out and he used Moses and Joshua to establish them in the land in which they are standing this very day. The people are gathered at Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where Joshua led the people. It was their first campsite in the land of Israel. And not that far away, you could see the ruins of Jericho where God had caused the walls to fall down and the first city of Canaan was given over to the Israelites. And again and again in those books, we see God doing miraculous things to a people who cry out to him again and again. God is righteous, he is strong, he is faithful, he keeps covenant with those who cry out to him. Samuel's an innocent man, God is an innocent God, but now the spotlight turns to the people of Israel because in verse 9, Samuel reminds them, although God did all these righteous, mighty deeds for you, your ancestors forgot. They forgot the Lord, their God. And in the Bible, forgetting is not merely an act, an excusable act of absent-mindedness. This amnesia is a deeply shameful ingratitude for all the wonderful things that God has done. It's covenant disloyalty. It's treachery. Yes, God's done all that kind of stuff for us. Nevertheless, we don't care. We're going to turn after these things instead. And it's striking that this tends to happen in the people of God, not when things are going badly, but when things are going well. We just sang that song, Blessed Be Your Name. And I've always thought of that as an amazing expression of faith in God when we are suffering. That song also speaks of blessing God when the sun is shining down on me. And I realized today as as I was singing that that might be the more spiritually difficult thing to do, to remain faithful to God when things are going well. He gives And he takes away. Are we able to bless God in both those things? Not only when he takes away, but also 
when he gives and shows generosity? Are we praying with the same fervor? Are we seeking the face of God with the same eagerness as we are when things are going badly in our lives? I think most of us have to admit that our prayer life tends to suffer. We don't find ourselves in the word with quite the same eagerness as when things are painful and difficult in our lives. And this is what happens to Israel again and again. They forget God. And then this pattern happens over and over again, as we see in the book of Judges. God invites, sends a foreign enemy to come to devastate the people of Israel and drive them to repentance. And they say, oh God, we're so sorry. Help us, please. Just like we do again and again when a difficult exam is coming up or a girlfriend breaks up with us or a wife is threatening divorce or a business is about to fail, we cry out in desperation to God. And God in his mercy, as he always does, answers with compassion and rescues us. And then the whole sorry pattern reasserts itself. The Old Testament feels like those badly written television shows where every episode is essentially the same. The bad guy might be different. The location might be different. But there's just a stock pattern that these lazy writers just crank through the machine and somehow this show goes on for season after season and it's utterly predictable. And the Old Testament can feel like that sometimes, trudging through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, how the people of God again and again are rescued and then they wander away from him. The tiresome story of Israel is your own tiresome story. Because it's the pattern of our lives, isn't it? We sin, we feel guilty, God disciplines us. Oh God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, please help me. God does good things for us, and then days, weeks, months later, we're back to the same old thing again. And the New Testament uses the image of a dog returning to its vomit. I've just, with pain and difficulty, repented and ejected this disgusting thing from my body, but don't throw it away. Put it in a little plastic container because I might want to consume that later. It's, it's a disgusting illustration, and I won't belabor it, but that is what we are doing every time we return to the sin that we think that we have repented of. And now something has changed. The cycle of sin and repentance has been broken. The Israelites have broken that cycle, but they haven't broken it on the sin side. They've broken it on the repentance side. They're not tired of sinning, but they're tired of repenting. Because repenting is difficult, shameful, embarrassing work. And having to trust God is kind of a pain sometimes. So you know what, let's just short-circuit that whole thing, and we're going to get a king instead. Rather than dealing with our own hearts, we want a political institution so that instead of crying out to God and repenting every time, we can just turn to our king and his standing army and his chariots and horses, and they can do the job for us. They want freedom, but it's not freedom from sin Israel's asking for, it's freedom from God. God and his tiresome demands and his tiresome obligations and his tiresome calls to repentance 
Let's set up an institution so that can be done once and for all. We're tired of God being a king over us. We want a powerful human leader instead. And yet woven through these chapters about the kingship, we see on the one hand that it's the sinful desire of the people and a rejection of God as king. But we also see that even through that rejection, God is working his own purposes. Saul is the king that Israel has sinfully chosen, but he's also the king that God has providentially anointed. It reminds us of the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph has been sent as a slave to the land of Egypt. His brothers appear. He reveals himself to them. They're freaking out that he's going to kill them now that their father is dead. And he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And here this whole kingship thing has been designed from evil hearts by the people, but God has deeper purposes yet for this kingship. And he is determined that he's going to bless the people of Israel. And so now, the institution is changing. We're going from judges to kingship. But the basic spiritual issue remains the same because Israel, again, is faced with a choice. There are two paths that are always open before the people of God. Path one is to serve, follow, obey God with all of our heart, to fully commit ourselves to him. And if we do that, Things will go well. We'll experience the blessing of God. But we always have the option of choice number two, door number two. The option of forgetting God, rejecting God, abandoning God, and turning to evil things. And if we do that, God promises, his hand is going to be against us. Always against us. And this is a choice that every generation faces. Israel in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land, in exile, what you and I face every single week. And this week could be the beginning of a newer and stronger relationship with God that goes from strength to strength. Or this week could be the first steps in your apostasy falling away and shipwreck like so many other Christians have done. And we have this choice before God that must weigh on our hearts. And this is a choice about personal loyalty. It's not about abstract ethics or a list of behaviors, although those things are implied but it's about personal loyalty to a covenant God. It's a relationship. Someone has been faithful to us. Someone has given generously to us, has rescued us again and again. And what I face this week is not a mere ethical choice or a question merely of my own fulfillment, but whether I'm going to be loyal and faithful or shameful and treacherous. It's deeply personal. You know, Israel thought that the real threat was external, that the real problem was the Philistines and the Amorites and their enemies all around. But Samuel pushes in their face the fact, your real threat 
is not external. Your real threat is yourself and your evil, unbelieving, wandering hearts. We are the problem. And Christians, of course, we're all tempted to do this, to look at other threats, anything besides ourself. And the word of God forces us to look deep within. Someone wisely said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And that is the same generation after generation, our human hearts and how they respond to God. And then, to emphasize his point, to show this is not just Samuel, this grumpy old man sounding off, this is the word of the Lord, Samuel calls forth a thunderstorm from the heavens. And this is very unusual because this is the time of the wheat harvest. It's May or June. The spring rains have long since dried up. And for there to be a thunderstorm to happen, let alone one called by a prophet of God, would be a highly unusual meteorological event. But it's not just a demonstration of power because this heavy rain falling from the sky is threatening to destroy the harvest. What the Israelites have been patiently tending and growing over months, God is able to destroy that in an hour's rainstorm in an afternoon. They are far more dependent on God than they realize. And the people freak out when this happens, when they see this demonstration of God's powerful anger against them, and they beg Samuel, Samuel, please pray for us. We've done this terrible thing. We've asked for a king. Please, we're sorry. Again, we're sorry. Please ask God that we won't die. And then Samuel says, remarkably, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. He's not minimizing their sin before God. That's okay. It's not a problem. It is a problem. You have done all this evil. But don't be afraid, and here's why. The Lord will not forsake his people. Though you forget, and you wander, and you reject, and you abandon God, he is never going to forget, reject, or abandon you. Because God is simply not that kind of God. And no matter how often God's people break the covenant and are faithless to him, God is a covenant-keeping God. And as Samuel emphasizes in verse 22, God's doing this for the sake of his great name. People's hope is not ultimately grounded in their own behavior, their own worthiness, their own deservingness to be forgiven by God and accepted once again. It's for the sake of the great name of God. God wants his glory to shine among the nations. He wants to show that he's a different God than all the idols worshipped by the human race. That he is a God who relates to people in a completely unusual and unnatural way. A God who is love, who is gracious, 
who does not treat people as they deserve, but loves to display his magnificent, overwhelming mercy to people who do not deserve it. And that's what keeps God fused to Israel throughout the Old Testament, as again and again they're faithless and do terrible things, and God refuses to reject his people because his own reputation is now tied up with Israel, with Israel's future. What are the nations going to say if God rejects his people? What kind of God is God showing himself to be if he destroys them like they deserve? God is determined to uphold his reputation as a righteous, faithful God, whatever his people do. And then Samuel summons his people to respond in faith to this kind of God. Don't turn after useless idols. Quite literally, he says, don't swerve away after emptiness. Those things cannot profit or deliver. Whatever things you're seeking besides God cannot ultimately give you the good things that you long for, and they cannot protect you from the bad things that you're afraid of. And that staff is going to snap in your hand when you've leaned all your weight upon it because what idols always do is disappoint. Whatever we're trusting in besides God is in the end going to leave us disappointed and alone. Consider what great things God has done. There is a spiritual forgetting and there's a spiritual remembering of calling to mind, of chewing over, of reflecting upon all the great things that God has done, how God has revealed his character to his people again and again and again. And the people of God are summoned to remind themselves and one another and their children of the kind of God that they worship. And it's only by continually doing that, that the people of God will be enabled to remain faithful to their God. Yes, things have changed. Things are changing in Israel, but underneath, it's the same underlying challenge. Will the people of God be faithful, or are they going to wander away? It's very telling, I think that Samuel's speech ends the way it does. It does not end on a note of hope, but with these words. Yet if you persist in doing evil, you and your king will perish. The words that hang in the air when Samuel, this old gray man, sits down are not words of uplifting encouragement and hope for the future. They're dark and ominous words. Because Samuel's speech is ultimately a failure. It's ultimately a failure because, as we can well predict if we've read the Old Testament up to this point, Israel's repentance is superficial and short-lived. 
because they have wandering hearts. It doesn't matter how much personal integrity the prophet brings to his speech. It doesn't matter how rigorous his logic or how thorough his exposition of the history of times past. It doesn't matter how provoking his accusations against Israel, how emotional his appeals. It doesn't even matter that signs and wonders come from heaven. None of those things change the hearts of the people of God. And none of those things are going to change your heart or my heart today. We'll be back to our vomit. Because none of these things can change us. God and his people have a deeply troubled relationship that plays itself out over hundreds of years in the Old Testament. It's a troubled relationship, and all the problem is on the side of the people of God. They have ample opportunity to repent and seek God with all their hearts. They do for a short time, but they are never able to continue. And the only way this relationship can be solved is if God, who is not the one responsible for this problem, if God somehow comes over to the human side of the relationship and fixes it there. And this is how God demonstrates his unswerving faithfulness to his promises to his people. He sends his son, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, And Jesus comes into the promised land as the one true Israelite. The only person who never swerves from obedience to God. The one Jew who serves, seeks, follows, and loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus demonstrates what wholehearted faithfulness to God looks like. What it means to keep covenant with God. He's not doing that merely as an unattainable ethical example for those of us who are continually stuck in the mire of our own sin. Jesus, as it were, takes us upon his own shoulders and brings us into his own Obedience to God. And Jesus' obedience is a painful obedience that means obedience even unto death on the cross. And Jesus goes to the cross to die for those who are rejecting his kingship. No, we will not have you reign over us. But this rejection, what people mean for evil, God means for good. And Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for the sins of his people. 
And he rises from the dead to give them new life, to change them from the inside. You know, despite all of our hopes for kingship in the Old Testament, beginning with Saul, maybe he's the one, maybe David's the one, maybe Solomon's the one, kingship is ultimately disappointing, even with the best of kings in Israel. But here at last is a kingship that really is going to change things that really is going to underdress, to address the underlying spiritual issue. Because Jesus is a king who comes to change human hearts. To break the power of sin in our lives. To bring true forgiveness. And not just to give us a fresh chance, which we're going to blow again and again, but to give us a fresh heart. Not just a second chance, but a second birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we all face choices, and we're all facing choices this week about whether we're going to be faithful to God or to wander away from him. And I could preach my little heart out with power and fire, but ultimately, that can't really help you or change you. Because mere exhortation is not enough. It's never enough to really change us. It's only the power of the living Christ, alive and at work in our hearts, that can change us into men and women and children who truly love and obey God and remain faithful to him. In the Gospels, we find Jesus encountering a man with a withered hand. And Jesus says to this man, whose hand is like a little shrunken claw, he commands him, stretch out your hand. Jesus is commanding this person to do something that he's not able to do. The one thing this man cannot do is stretch out his hand. This is the problem, Jesus, in case you didn't notice. But Jesus is not cruelly mocking this person because as this man responds in faith, he begins to do what he's not able to do. And in his faith filled obedience to Jesus, To his joy and surprise, his hand begins to stretch out. And this is a picture of all of us launching forth in faith this week and every week in obedience to Jesus. Jesus is commanding you to do something you cannot do. But this king has real power in his words. And when Jesus speaks the word of command to his children, somehow we find ourselves acting out the miracle of Jesus as we begin to obey. And if we wait and wait and wait for Jesus to do it instead of us, we're never going to obey. But it's as we act in faith, depending on Jesus, 
and his Holy Spirit that God begins to move in our lives. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.